Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. It's been said that there are two ways to learn things. Two ways to learn things. You can learn from someone who already knows. You can pay attention in a way to what they are teaching you. That's what teaching and instruction is supposed to be about. That's what parents are for, kids. Or the second way is you can figure it out for yourself. Or as some have called it, the hard way, (laughs) the school of hard knocks. So two ways to learn things. We can watch, listen, pay attention to what's being instructed to us, and we can go, oh, okay, I get that. Or we can figure it out ourselves. Many times in life, figuring out things the hard way has some more challenging consequences. Yeah, there's some painful things along the way. There's that quote, of course, and I'm not even sure who to attribute it to, but it says that we should either, we can either learn from history or we are destined to repeat it. As we look at our text today, uh, I know that customarily at a Calvary Chapel, you're going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and so we have what we call consecutive exposition or just chapter by chapter. Well, we're going to parachute into 1 Corinthians 10, so I need to provide you with some context. And what we'll see is that Paul, in speaking to the, to the Corinthian believers, refers back to some people f- about 1,500 years before, but I also believe that there are many applications if we jump a couple thousand years ahead of the people Paul was writing to in Corinth to our day, especially our times that we find ourselves in. The context for the letter to the Corinthians, Paul on a second missionary journey, was um, revisiting some churches in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and felt he should, you know, thought, well, maybe we should go north. And and in the book of Acts, it says he was prevented from doing so, and he was directed to go across to what's now modern-day Greece, which is actually going from the continent of Asia to the continent of Europe. And you'll see that story about the work in Philippi where they were in jail and they had a midnight jail break. Um, and then he goes down the, uh, the, the, what we know now as the country of Greece to Thessalonica, Berea. He gets to Athens and he has that real interesting discourse with the leaders there. But then he goes on to Corinth. And if you pick it up in Acts chapter 18, I'm going to reference this uh, starting in about verse 9. Paul's in Corinth and it says, The Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid. You see, Paul had been run out of town in many of those cities. He had been literally run out of town in Thessalonica in less than a month, a month's time, and he got chased out. So back to our text, uh, Acts 18, uh, 9 says, Don't be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I'm with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So a vibrant church is raised up in a city that we know historically was a very vibrant city. You see, it was a key trade city. So there's people coming and going from all parts, all directions. 
It was also a city where there was many temples to false gods. And so, and so we, what we believe is, is a very um, pagan, in a sense, culture. It's also a very immoral city. If someone said you were acting like a Corinthian, it wasn't a compliment. <laughs> there was some moral uh, depravity going on there. So it was an immoral city. It was very, um, there was idolatry. Uh, there was lots of ideas because it was part of that Greek culture, which, you know, they tried to key in on understanding and knowing different philosophies and ideas. So Paul writes two long letters to the Corinthian church. And in this first one, <laughs> Uh, it's been very corrective, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians. Uh, this church, while it had a vibrancy to it, uh, they were also quite immature. They had some real issues going on. And so he's very corrective in everything from division they had amongst themselves um, to uh, instruction about marriage, um, instruction about what to do with these pagan temples that had these... Uh, they sacrificed to their, to their false gods, and they had so much meat left over that you could get a really good deal on a you know, quarter beef, and, and the believers were saying, well, what's the deal? What's wrong with that? It's a false god. It doesn't matter to me. And so Paul actually gives instruction. It's like, yeah, you're free to do that, but make sure you don't stumble somebody else. Anyway, up to these, uh, through these first eight or nine chapters, it's very corrective in nature. By the time that we get to chapter 9, Paul talks about his example uh, that he set in Corinth and how he wanted to make sure that he was able to bring the message to everybody. He wanted to reach across any divide and he wanted to be able to reach everybody with the gospel message. And then so he's, he equates it with running a race. And he said, you know, the, the one who wins the race is the one who's, who applies themselves and stays focused and diligent is disciplined. And so he ends chapter 9, which sets us up for chapter 10, obviously. Uh, but he says, I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. So he says, we don't want to be DQ'd. And that's not talking about Dairy Queen, okay? We don't want to be DQ'd here. But he's going to talk about some people in the Old Testament they had their chance. They saw God do some incredible things, but because of their disobedience, they suffered some pretty painful consequences. Okay? So that's the, that's the setup for this uh, uh, chapter called 1 Corinthians 10. We're only going to go through about the first 13 verses today. But I call this, if you're looking for a working title, I call this Lessons Learned or Ignored. Lessons Learned or Ignored. So let's pick up the text uh, and read the first five verses. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all ate the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So Paul's saying, I don't want you to be unaware. We've got um, 
this phrase used actually several times in the New Testament. A fun little side study is to look that phrase up and see other places where Paul or another writer would say, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware. And it's really kind of sobering, almost haunting for the modern day church. Because you know what the things are that he says? Here it's, it's really, I don't want you to be unaware of the Old Testament example. Well, there's a lot of churches today that just kind of set the Old Testament aside. And it's like, no, we shouldn't do that. You know what else he says? I don't want you to be ignorant about, I don't want you to be ignorant about the Holy Spirit and how the gifts of the Holy Spirit work. I don't want you to be ignorant about how Satan's devices, that there's a, a battle, a spiritual battle going on. He also says, I don't want you to be ignorant or unaware about Israel or the Lord's return. Many of those subjects, we kind of go, wow, there's a lot of Christians today that don't really even want to touch some of those subjects. And yet those are the things in the New Testament where Paul says, no, don't be unaware. Don't be ignorant. Study and see and get the right uh, picture, get the right conclusions about these things. So here he's saying, moreover which means he's trying to, of course, emphasize the point, build on what's been said. He wants to discuss or bring up those things that we learn about, predominantly in the uh, Old Testament books of Exodus and Numbers. Exodus 13 through 17, you know the story. Those people, after 400 years of bondage in, in Egypt, which, by the way, God had told Abraham that they'd be in bondage, but they'd be delivered out. Moses is raised up as that man to lead the way. And they have those 10 plagues in Egypt. That's in the first like 10, 11 chapters of Exodus. You read this account. And then you find that they are with the Passover. The last plague is a judgment against the firstborn of households, but they're instructed to uh, sacrifice a lamb and the blood of the lamb is on the doorposts of the home. And so the death angel passes over those homes where the blood of the lamb then brings about that path. And that's what Jews still celebrate today is the Passover. That's where it's from. Well, you know the story. They, they come out of the land uh, of Egypt and uh, they are supposed to take a trip over to the promised land which should take less than 40 days. How long did it take? 40 years. Yeah, and we'll see why here as we go along. So he says, I don't want you to be unaware that our, all our fathers were under the cloud. So what's the cloud? Well, if you remember, once they got out in the wilderness, God led them and guided them by this cloud by day and this fire by night. And when the cloud would begin to move, it was time to break camp and, and pick up and move. But think about it. It wasn't just guidance and direction that the cloud provided. You're out in the desert all day, and now you're, you're like 2 million plus people. What does that cloud provide you with? It provides you with shade. It provides you with protection. So not only was it God's guidance with the cloud, but it was also God's protection that he was providing for them. The second thing we see here is that they all passed through the sea. And we know, of course, that was that great moment where they were, they were trapped. There was no other way. Out. There was no way out, they thought, humanly possible. The Egyptian army had, Pharaoh had changed his mind, came after them. They're up against the Red Sea. And what does God do? But he has Moses 
raise up the, uh, the rod and, and the, the waters part. And the people of Israel passed through the Red Sea. The Egyptian army then coming after them is swallowed up in the sea. Beautiful story. You can hear, even get that song of Miriam and uh, I think it's Exodus like around chapter 15. Now, we get a kind of a puzzling statement here in verse 2. It says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It's like, what? Baptized into Moses? What's that about? Let's keep this simple. I believe this is just a simple uh, comparison. Baptism, we know in the New Testament, is symbolic of our old life, our sins being taken under and then coming out of the water, representing new life. And that, that change that happens transactionally uh, when our sins are forgiven. So baptism is a symbol of our old life, our sinful life being brought under. And then as we come out, it's, a, it, it's a indicative of that new life and that deliverance in a sense. So simply put, baptized into Moses, yeah, it's a contrast between the bondage they were in, the slavery they were under in Egypt to being delivered out of that into liberty, okay? So did they pass through the sea? Yes. Were they technically baptized like we know baptism? Well, no, but it's symbolic from the bondage of sin to the liberty we have by faith, okay? And the same thing with the cloud. So it's a symbol of our deliverance for us that our uh, sins are washed. Our sins aren't washed away by being baptized. It's symbolic of what Christ has done for us and the representative of the fact that we have now put our faith and trust in what he's done for us. The third thing we see here, it says they all ate the same spiritual food. Spiritual food. Well, that was a couple things. They had quail. They had these birds that flew into the camp when they wanted meat. That's pretty odd. I mean... But the main thing they had for almost 40, about 40 years was manna, was manna. It was like the dew came down like it can here in the summertime. And uh, in the morning, they would go collect this bread from heaven. But do you know what manna actually means? The word in the Hebrew, it means, what is it? That's what manna means. It means, what is it? So God provided this food for them. Two million people plus estimates, there's 600,000 men, we know that, that are over 20. Uh, so you got to figure there's that many women, children. You know, so it, it's, it's a couple million people. Well, what do we know from the New Testament? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. So we have a, a comparison once again. And Paul's bringing this, bringing them up to this. It's moreover, guys, don't be unaware. Don't be unaware of the things you see in the Old Testament, as in particular in this account of the, of the contrast or the comparisons that we have to our life today. So we have the spiritual food, then we have the spiritual drink. Ah, this is an interesting one. If you're a note taker, this is Exodus 17. The people were thirsty. Moses is instructed, strike this rock, the water comes out and their thirst is, is quenched. Interesting, though, because it happens a second time, and Moses is instructed to speak to the rock. But what does he do? He's frustrated, even angry with the people's unbelief and hard hearts, and Moses strikes the rock a second time. 
And God then speaks to him and says, Moses, you're not going to be able to go into the land. And, and in a sense, you know, people say, wow, Moses didn't get to go into this land. Well, that was his, that was his error because what it is when we see here in the text that that rock was Christ and we go, how's that supposed to work? Well, we'll show you in a minute. But the analogy is that Christ was struck once and then all we do is speak and, and we have. So Christ doesn't have to be crucified again and again. We, we see the rock struck once, uh, not, not again and again like Moses did. Now, when we work with this idea, this idea of Jesus being the one who brings this, this quenching to our thirst, there's a couple places we have to jot down. The first one is in John chapter 4. You remember the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Interesting dialogue there in John chapter 4. Um, Jesus speaks to her. Um, it's, you think, okay, how's he setting this conversation up? But uh, if you look at uh, verse 10, Jesus answers her and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. <laughs> she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well's deep. Where then are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. Ah, then we advance up to John chapter 7. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's the Feast of the Tabernacles. Tabernacles really means celebrating this very uh, time period that we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 10. That is, it's a celebration of God's faithfulness in all those wilderness wandering years. And so the Jews for a week's time basically would live out in tents or booths or tabernacles to celebrate God's faithfulness through those wilderness wanderings. Well, we look at John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So when Paul says that rock that they got water from way back there in Exodus, in their wandering years, that rock was Christ. Jesus basically says both in John 4 and John 7, you're thirsty, come to me. I'll give you living water. And really John 7 goes on to talk about how he, that refers to the Holy Spirit in us. And that thirst is quenched. And I invite you today, if you're at that point in your life, where, oh, maybe you've gone to church, maybe you've hung out, but you've always had a nagging thirst, like, ah, oh, I'm just, I just not there. Let me tell you, what I've found and many others have found, that the only way to ultimately have that thirst quenched is for you to be restored to a relationship with the God who created you. And the way to do that is through Jesus Christ. He came, lived a sinless life, gave his life willingly on the cross so that it would pay the price, the penalty for our sin. As we trust in him, we find that forgiveness yeah. Oh, you, it isn't like you still won't have issues in your life, but ultimately that will bring a peace that the Bible says that passes understanding. 
So if you've never done that, make today the day that you trust Christ. You simply put your faith and trust in what he's done for you and stop striving, thirsting after things, looking for uh, the satisfaction, the quenching of, of, your, of your thirst in all the wrong places, the places that won't ultimately quench that thirst. Jesus is the one that will quench that thirst. The Bible's quite clear about it. Okay, back to our text, 1 Corinthians 10. We get this summary statement from Paul. He says in verse 5, I believe it is. Uh, yeah, verse 5. With most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. <laughs> kind of an understatement here. Kind of an understatement. We don't get an account of how faithful the women were. I mean, you can, there's, we know from the book of Numbers, they took a census at the beginning of the book of Numbers, the beginning of their wilderness wanderings, around 600,000 men. You know how many of those 600,000 went into the, uh, to the land? Two. Not 200,000, not 2,000, not 200. Two. Yeah. But by the end of Numbers, after the 40 years, guess what? And this, and when they first counted, that was everybody 20 and, and above. By the time you get to the end of the book of Numbers, 40 years later, there's another 600,000 that have, have replaced them. We don't know about the women, but when it says most of them, God was not well pleased. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, almost an exaggeration there. Just about everybody walked in unbelief, hard hearts, and they didn't, they didn't take God up on his promises. They didn't see him, even though he'd done these miraculous things. These people had seen the deliverance out of Egypt. They'd been there for the Passover. They had seen the Red Sea parted. They had seen manna come. They'd seen water from the rock. And yet, what did they do? They did things that didn't please God. We're going to see what they are here in just a minute. It's unbelief. Paul points that out to the Corinthians. Why? Because the issues he's going to address were very, very similar to what was going on in Corinth. And folks, I can guarantee you, they are very similar issues to today. I know you'll say, no, culturally it can't be 2,000 years. Oh, yeah, wait and see as we go through the text here. So let's pick it up in verse 6. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, or some Bibles will say test Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So we see this repeated, the beginning of that block of text, and at the end, the idea of an example, an example. What's the word in the Greek language there that this was written in? It's the word tupos or typos, where we get the word type. Now, I know some of you probably won't be able to relate to this, but I do, so bear with me. The old keyboard on your computer or phone or whatever, those things come, or they're, they're kind of a, another variation from something called a typewriter, okay? A typewriter was this, you, yeah, same keyboard, okay? And you would hit the, the key, and it would strike 
with a, uh, basically a big metal stick with the, the letter on it, threw a ribbon onto a paper so it would make an impression. That's what this word means. Tupos means to make an impression or a figure formed by striking a blow. Now, believe it or not, I actually took typing in high school. I figured it'd be a class where I didn't have any homework, you know? And, and the lady who taught it was wonderful. She, I just saw her last year. She's like in her 90s, Mrs. Wiki, wonderful lady. But at that time, mid, this is early to mid 70s, okay? I know, it was after the Industrial Revolution, don't worry. Um, our, at that time, the class was half electric typewriters and half manual typewriters, okay? The electric ones, man, you just barely touch it and the thing starts zinging along. But the manuals, I mean, you really had to lean on some of those keys. And if it's your left hand little pinky over here doing the Z, I mean, it, it's, you gotta push. You really gotta push. So I get some nods, so that's good. So any of you young folks, you know, get to a museum someday and find a typewriter. Look at how it works. And you'll see that it strikes a blow to make an impression. Make an impression. What's Paul saying? These things that happened to the Israelites should be making an impression on us. God provides them for us to make an impression. Are we listening? Are we paying attention? Or are we going to have to learn it the hard way? Okay? See where that's going. So here's the things that he lists out here. There's about five of them, but the first one is to lust after the evil things. And of course, you know what lust simply means, being enticed and responding to that enticement to go after things we shouldn't go after. Most likely, this had things to, something to do with their old life when they were in bondage in Egypt, okay? And he said they fell prey to that. They lusted after things, evil things, as they did. The second thing is they were idolaters. Remember the story when Moses is up on the mountain 40 days, and the people go, man, where's Moses? Whatever happened to him? And it's so sad because these people who had actually been in bondage for 400 years, when they left Egypt, do you know what? They almost got their back wages. The Egyptians, it says, gave them all this gold jewelry. They left Egypt with wealth, and they'd been slaves for 400 years. How's that supposed to work? You don't talk about a God who provides. What did they do with their gold jewelry? Moses is up there. They start a big fire. They melt the gold jewelry down. And they form, yeah, they form a golden calf. You know the story. <laughs> Aaron, you know, wonderful spiritual leader that he is, tries to tell uh, Moses when Moses does come down, oh, I don't know, we just threw it in there and this calf came out. You know, like, right, yeah. That sounds like a young child when mom and dad come home and find the find the mass. Oh, I don't know how it happened. I guess some people don't grow past that. Idolatry in that sense, needing something you can see, feel, and touch. It's like people have lost this idea, this conscious idea of God and his existence. So it seems like people want something before them. And in that case, it was a statue. And, and idolatry in many of our minds is simply, oh, that's those parts of the world. They have these weird religious practices, and they, they bow down before a statue. And, uh, of course, in Paul's time in Corinth, I'm not sure exactly what those pagan temples had in them, but there was idolatry. They were going to temples of false gods. There were hundreds of them in Corinth. 
That's what they were doing. Today, America, statues? Come on. We should be able to just blow right by this one, right? That one doesn't apply to us. Uh, let's just wait a second here. If it's something that we put instead of God and it has the most important or prominent place in our lives, could we be making an idol? Could things in our life, in our culture, end up being idolatry? Maybe someone's job is super important to them. It's their everything. Maybe a relationship. Maybe their toys. Maybe the adults' big toys. Um, all kinds of things, our pursuits, our work, our success, being known, relationships, all those things. There's many things, I believe, that Christians can fall prey to, especially with idolatry, because it says that uh, we get the impression that, well, if there's no, we're not bowing down in front of a statue. Well, what are we bowing down to, in a sense, in our lives? Just put the question out there. It might even be just our possessions and our our materialism, our comfort. Okay, the next thing is immorality. It says that uh, after the, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, we know that part of their play was sexual immorality. They committed sexual immorality. And then it says some of them did in one day 23,000 fell. Now this is believed to be a reference to Numbers 25, where 23,000 uh, approximately that many people are recorded in Numbers 25 after the Balaam incident. Remember Balaam, the talking? You wonder, you know, how can the donkey talk? And uh, no politician jokes there, please. Um, Balaam couldn't or wouldn't curse the Israelites. That's what Balak, this king, had asked him to come and do. Balaam's a really interesting guy. Really, theologians are still struggling with what do you do with Balaam? But but what he does say, as we put the pieces of scripture together, he basically says to this king who wants to curse the Israelites, he said, let them curse themselves. <laughs> um, entice them with these foreign women and their men will, and sure enough, 23,000, it says, die in a day. The guy who came to the rescue and said enough was a guy named Phineas. Read about it, Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25. Okay, the next thing here is he says, um, nor... Let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted and were destroyed by serpents. The word could be uh, also interpreted as test. What does that really mean? What it really means is the people not only questioned, but the text uh, in uh, Numbers 21 says that they spoke against God. They brazenly spoke against God. They were questioning him to the point of saying, you're not going to come through with what you promised. Well, we know what happened there. The serpents were biting people and they were, they were dying. And in order to stop that, Moses instructed to take a pole and put a serpent up there on the pole. And when the people looked up, they were then healed. Ha, two things there. Number one, prominently, Jesus says it's like that. When we look up to Jesus hung on the cross, it's like that. But anybody see an insignia in the medical community these days? Been there for years and years now. American Medical Association, you have a brass pole and you have a serpent on it. So it's a symbol of healing that medical, uh, much of the medical profession has adopted from that account in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Then we see him go on to verse 10. Nor complain. 
as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Ouch. That one hits a little close to home. We're, you know, we say, oh, we don't bow down before statues and, you know, we don't speak against God directly most of the time. But grumbling, murmuring, complaining, yeah. Think the story of the 12 spies. They saw the land, 10 of them come back and say, we're not going to be able to do it. It'll never happen. They're too big. We can't do it. Two of them, thankfully, Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can. Our God is great. He'll give us the land. But the people were swayed by that. And it says their hearts were hardened and they walked in unbelief. So that grumbling and murmuring and complaining really is a symbol of unbelief. Unbelief. Now, like I said, today we have to be careful. We get in uncertain times with some interesting things happening. It's easy to complain and grumble and murmur. But I know the God who says he knows the end from the beginning. I know he's in control. No matter how bizarre our circumstances here this year, no matter what happens politically, no matter what happens with a pandemic, we know that God knows and he's ultimately in control. So our grumbling and our murmuring and complaining, ouch, we kind of have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, God, forgive me. I don't want to question you that you are ultimately in control. Oh, yeah, I know. There's, peop- there's things that are certainly wrong. And as citizens, we want to be engaged. There, there's, I'm not saying that. Don't, please don't mistake what I'm saying. But uh, our hearts need to be first and foremost saying, God, we're confident that you're still in control, even though we do not understand how this is going, how this is going to work, how you're going to work through this. Okay. So all these things happened as examples. They're written for our admonition. Admonition here could also be interpreted as instruction. Back to our theme. Are we going to learn from the lessons that are taught us? Are we going to be instructed by what's happened before? Or are we going to have to go through it the hard way and learn the hard way with sometimes severe consequences? Um, jot down here another verse, Romans 15, 4, says, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of Scripture we might have hope. And all the more reason for us to be reading in the Old Testament. There are some great stories, great examples from our Old Testament that apply still for today. Yes, they ultimately point to Jesus, point to this promise that God made that he would, through the Israelite people, bless all nations. And of course, we know that to be ultimately the the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But there are so many stories and accounts there of people who sometimes acted in faith and sometimes stumbled, and we see how God works through that. So, if we need hope in a crazy world, it might just be that the answers are right in front of us, right here. The instruction, the examples are right here in the Bible. They might just be right in front of us. Well, let's uh, take it to verse 12 and 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So there's a warning and a promise here, or a series of promises. The warning is anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Well, that's very similar to what we see time and again throughout the book of Proverbs. 
the, the idea that be careful. Our confidence needs to be in the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, don't, don't go through life without any, any certainty, but that certainty is in him, not ourselves. And that's the, that's the thing here. Some people will say, oh, I can, I can handle that on my own. I can, I can take it. I can do it. Um, you know, the idea there is be careful. Um, if your confidence is in the Lord, carry on. Uh, if your confidence is in you, be, be cautioned, be warned, be careful. Now, the promise, though, is that no temptation, and we may interpret that word uh, as trial or test. All those words, tempting and trial, I know it sounds like two different things, but it's all the same root word. So what we get to there is our difficulties in life, our difficulties in life, during those difficulties, what are we tempted to do? That's how I see it working. We know our trials and the difficulty in our lives. James says that we should count it all joy. We know it's producing in us an endurance, a steadfastness, a patience. First Peter talks about that as well. As we suffer through different things, what is it doing in our lives? What is God working in our lives through those things? So the promise is, is in, in any difficulty that we go through, rather than succumb to the temptation to grumble, murmur, complain, or take out our, you know, all oh, these difficulties are too much, so I'm going to go off the deep end, and whether that's in sexual immorality or drunkenness or, you know, whatever it might be that becomes a sinful behavior in response to a difficult circumstance. No, we're to operate in faith knowing that God won't allow us to be put through something that he won't see us through. He's not, he's strong enough to see us through any of those things as long as we rely on him. That's the promise here. He says it's, it's common to man. Whatever you're going through is common to man. What does that mean? It's, it's happened before. You're not alone. Oh, I know. This year, many people, wow, this is unprecedented. How many thousand times have you heard that word in, 2000, in 2020? Well, okay, fine. Got it. But the idea here is that we're not alone. Remember Elijah? That incredible story um, up there on the mountain with the prophets of Baal, what is it, 400 of them, and Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and wow, what an incredible story. Well, what happens next? He hears Jezebel is after him. He runs. So he takes on 400 false prophets of Baal, but yet in, in, in the threat of this one woman, he flees. And he ends up in the desert, and it's believed he ended up in the cave where, or on the mountain where Moses received the law. God says, what are you, what are you doing here? You know? and, but God reminds him, no, you're not alone. There's 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so we're to be reminded of that. As far as the circumstances, and forgive me on this one. i got to have a little bit of fun with you, but... I'm sure most all of you have been to the dentist, right? One of my least favorite places to go. And one time I had to have a root canal, okay? I don't really enjoy going to the dentist's office at all. But then the prospect of a root canal, I'm going, oh, no. I mean, that high-pitched drilling sound, yeah, anybody else? Like, oh, come on. 
But you know what I take heart in when I go to the dentist's office? That people are walking out the door ahead of me. <laughs> people have been here before and lived to tell about it. And I can go, okay, I think we can get through this. You know, there's not the, you know, the hearse picking them up because they didn't make it through their root canal. Okay, that guy walked out. I'll be good. I know that's a little bit simple, but that, that literally, even going in for one of those blood draw things, you know, they take a bunch of vials of, I don't watch. Anybody watch? I don't. It's just like, okay, come on. These guys are good at this. They're pros. They're getting paid. So just, you know, look the other way and, you know, think about something else. Knowing God is faithful. God is faithful. And that's one of the main lessons in this whole thing is that in spite of these difficulties, those Israelites had never seen those things, obviously. They're in the wilderness. They hadn't seen those things. But they should have known God was faithful. He's faithful to come through on his promise to deliver them out of their bondage in Egypt. He's faithful to see them across the Red Sea when there was no other way out. He's faithful to provide for them the food and the, drink and the water they needed in the wilderness. But they stumbled. They stumbled into unbelief. Paul reassures the Corinthians, God is faithful. He won't, he will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you are able, beyond what you're able as you rely on God. But with that temptation, with that trial, with that testing, he'll make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it or to endure it. So if we rely on him, he gives us the strength. He even allows his Holy Spirit in filling us to, to give us the peace that we can have, even if it's very, very turbulent times. What great promises. Absolutely incredible promises. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is one of those memorable verses that we rely on. But that's the, that's the passage that it, that it comes out of. It's this comparison to all these things that happened in the wilderness when these people had seen God do great and incredible things they stumbled into unbelief. They fell prey to their, their lustful desires. They, they set up idols. They, yeah, they did all those things, disregarding what God had provided for them, what God had told them. We'll all face difficulties. Remember, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but cheer up for I've overcome the world. Somebody comes along and says, oh, you're a Christian, you won't have any trouble. <laughs> right. Things will happen. Now, I guarantee it to you, if you live, follow the path that the scriptures talk about and what is, what is behavior that honors God versus behavior that doesn't honor God, you'll have less painful consequences if you, if you live a life that honors God. But that doesn't mean you won't have trials and difficulties, sometimes even very painful ones. We face difficulties in our culture right now, but many of us, many of you, are facing difficulties. It may be something medical, maybe relationally. It may be a job loss. Any number of things happen in our lives. And as Alan Redpath says, those difficulties are graded to the fiber of our lives. God seems to allow different things uniquely for all of us. So it's been a real trial for you. I may have gone through something similar. I may know very little about it. But I do know, God knows, and he's promised that if you rely on him, he'll see it through that. He's able to do that. He's faithful. He's faithful. So we shouldn't get caught unaware. We shouldn't get caught unaware, folks. 
I know. You may say, well, you don't know my life. You don't know what I've gone through. I probably don't. <laughs> I've been figuring it out by now. I'm a relatively insensitive guy, okay? God's still working on me on that one. So I may not be the most sensitive to the difficulties you're facing, but I do, do know the God and his promises of the Bible. I know that he's faithful. And we should continue to be reinforced in, in, in our confidence in his promises by making sure we continue in the word of God. And, and have a regular time where we're looking for him to speak through his word and reinforce those things in our life. So we're better prepared. Some people, in some areas of our life, it might be wise to even put up some guardrails. You know, you ever go through a, like a mountainous terrain, you know, and the thousand foot cliff is there? Well, they put a guardrail there. Why? Because if you go over that cliff, you know, it's going to be real painful. Some people in their lives, I mean, if you've had an, an addiction issue uh, with alcohol, you probably don't want to rent the apartment above the bar. Okay, you put a guardrail there where you say, okay, I'm not going to stay away from that situation. Okay, that, that's just wise. That's just a wise thing to do. But we also have a general realization that Jesus said it's to your advantage that I go because then he can send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And he's promised to put his Holy Spirit in us. If you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you. And as we learn to respond to what the Holy Spirit wants to do, and not just transforming us, but then empowering us, strengthening us, bringing that peace and joy that we wouldn't have without him. That's what we have in the New Testament era that those guys didn't have in the book of Exodus. They didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. They certainly had the hand of God working powerfully. They certainly had the promises of God. They'd seen him do wonderful things. We have the Holy Spirit as believers today. And that should give us great hope, great comfort, great peace as we rely on these great promises even when we're in times of great uncertainty. Yeah. So, will we learn from the lessons of Scripture? Will we let them strike, make an impression in our lives? Or will we have to learn the hard way? Hopefully not the hard way, folks. Allow the, the things of Scripture, even the stories, to make an impression so that we're better prepared to face the difficulties that are ahead of us. God's faithful. He won't let us be tested beyond what we can bear. We look to him, he'll see us through it. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your great faithfulness. I thank you that even being a little bit uncomfortable about some of these things, we know that you're faithful. So Father, I pray that you would forgive us for those areas where we lack faith, Forgive us for those areas where we blatantly veer off course. And Lord, I pray that if there's people here who need to find that forgiveness and peace from you, I pray they'd find it today just by simply confessing. Uh, the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if there's people who need to have better guardrails in their lives because they keep slipping into things, I pray that you'd show them how they can do that. Help, make, help us all make good choices so we can honor you. But Lord, overall, help us to realize your promises are true and your Holy Spirit is within us. We want to rely and learn to yield to your Holy Spirit, not quench what the Holy Spirit is convicting us of or leading us into. So empower us, embolden us, Lord, for the days we're living in. We pray you do mighty things in our lives, our families, 
and those that are hurting medically and those that are uh, suffering for, from uncertainty with job loss, whatever the circumstance, Lord, I pray you'd just work powerfully in these days. Do a good work in this church, in this city as well, in our state and country too, Lord. We need you. We confess we have not honored you in many ways. But Lord, I pray you'd show your merciful hand and do a mighty work here of drawing people yourself, restoring people to yourself in these days. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.